Let us pray. Holy God, join us now as we enter into a time to dive into your word, hearing again a call to serve. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Our Old Testament reading comes from Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, and verses 15 through 16. Let us listen now to God's word to us this day. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will make you exceedingly numerous. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the ancestor of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout, throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall give rise to nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So 
soul shall live for God, and my children too shall serve. They shall tell of the Lord to generations yet to come. Declare to those unborn the faithfulness of God. These things the Lord has done. I will Today's Gospel reading comes from the 8th chapter of Mark, verses 31 to 38. It's a difficult passage, but an important one for us to hear. Listen now for God's word to you and to me. Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed and after three days, rise again. He said all this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Jesus called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The word of the Lord. This passage is no good. No good at all. This passage is a collision between the impossible demands of discipleship and our lukewarm faith. While we struggle as individuals and as a people to just get God on the calendar, Jesus seems to, in this passage, he seems to ask the impossible of each and every one of us. If anyone had become my followers, he says, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Now, there are too many questions stirred up by today's passage to address all of them in one sermon. It's just not possible. So I'm going to skip over a lot of the questions raised by this passage, including the most obvious question, I think. Do you want to be a follower of Jesus? I'm going to assume by your presence here today 
during a pandemic and a little bit of a rainstorm. I'm going to assume that some small part of you wants to answer yes to that question. You want to follow Jesus, even if this passage makes you want to run to the hills. And if you're here today or listening today and you're not yet there, you don't yet want to follow Jesus, that's okay too. After an invitation like today's, no one would blame you. So where to begin? Let's begin with a sport I've never played. Football. Now in football, there's this thing, this move, this practice, called the three-step drop. It's a move, a practice, that puts the quarterback in the best position to throw a pass. It's a practice, a discipline, that puts them right where they want to, where they need to be, the three-step drop. Now, step one of the three-step drop is a big step back with the lead foot. Now, the lead foot is the foot that's closest to the throwing hand. It's a giant step back. That is step one. After receiving the ball from the center, the quarterback takes the ball and steps back. The next step is a crossover step, bringing the other foot over the lead foot the foot opposite of the passing arm. It's this crossover step that gets you ready for the third and final step of the three-step drop. The third step is again with the lead foot, and it plants firmly on the ground and places the quarterback in what is called the pocket, the best place on the field from which to execute a pass. It's deep enough to create some space between the quarterback and the lineman, but not too deep to make the throw even more difficult than it already is. Mastery of this three-step drop is critical for any quarterback who wants to be successful. Well, in today's passage, I'm going to make the case that Jesus teaches his followers today the three-step drop of faith, a practice that puts us in the best position to live out our faith in hope and in trust. Like the three-step drop in football, the mechanics of the move are actually pretty simple, but given the extreme pressure they are often executed under, they have to be practiced over and over again to become second nature. If any want to become my followers, Jesus says, then let them deny themselves, step one, and take up their cross, step two, and follow me, step three. I will never forget my 20th high school reunion. It was an absolutely fascinating experience. Like stepping back in time with some God-given perspective. Now, as we all know, much of the high school experience is about managing a developmentally appropriate if not slightly unhelpful, obsession with oneself, with how we look, with what we do, with who our friends are, with what we wear. This is part of the reason adolescence is just so difficult to navigate. It can be really hard when you're an adolescent during that time to get any sense of perspective. I have a 15-year-old, trust me, I know, firsthand right now. Instead of revolving around the sun, like everyone else. 
In high school, we often place ourselves at the center of our own little universe. It's a developmentally appropriate thing, but it can make life really, really hard. Well, my 20th high school reunion offered a good corrective to this practice. As I walked around and greeted my classmates, all the old stuff had started to come back. Long-forgotten anxiety started bubbling up to the surface. I wonder what Jennifer thinks of me now. Does Mike still think I'm a dork? Does Nancy remember the time she slammed the gate in my face when I tried to kiss her goodnight? Yes, that really happened. Well, by the end of the evening, as I made my way around the room, I realized something pretty profound, actually. Contrary to my perception in high school, my classmates had thought little of me at all. One of my early crushes, a girl who I spent years trying to impress, hadn't even realized I had gone to a different high school for freshman year. A guy with whom I competed viciously for playing time on the basketball team couldn't even remember playing together. And the most common question I got that night was not, what are you doing now, Derek, or how many kids do you have? The question I got from numerous people was, were you this tall in high school? I may have been consumed with myself, but no one else was. They were all worried about their own life struggles, which is why the step one of the three-step drop of faith is so essential, this denial of oneself. The first step, this denial of self, might just be the most important one, really, because it reorients us from a life centered on ourselves, whether we're adults or children. It reorients us from a life centered on ourselves to a life centered on God. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's always and forever about all the ways God is moving in and through all of us. And until we accept that life is not all about us, all about me, it's impossible, I think, to show compassion, to practice generosity, and to apply any of Jesus' teachings to our lives. The invitation to deny one's self is the first step because it's the one that gets us out of the fantasy into reality, where God is the primary actor in all of our lives. If anyone to become my followers, Jesus says, let them deny themselves, step one, and take up their cross, step two, and follow me, step three. Now, once we deny ourselves and reorient ourselves to God, we have to pick something up. We have to pick something up that many of us spend our lives trying to avoid. We have to pick up our cross. Now, in first century Palestine, as you know, the cross was not an icon people wore around their neck or stuck on the back of their cars. The cross was a symbol of suffering and of death. The cross was how Rome kept order throughout their vast empire. As people made their way into cities like Jerusalem, they would pass crosses on the side of the road with people nailed to them. People who defied Rome and her laws. Some would be dem dead, some would be in the process of dying. Either way, the message was clear to those walking the path. Now, when we encounter Jesus, I think most of us see him, we first meet him, we see him as a friendly magician, a Dumbledore of sorts, as a man who can help us get what we want, to be what we want to be, as someone who will make our lives just a little bit better, a little bit easier. 
But as we get deeper into the gospel story and into our relationship with God, we realize the same man who promises us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, the same guy demands an awful lot from us. In addition to our salvation, Jesus also wants our sanctification, which is a fancy way of saying Jesus wants us to grow and change. And it appears the path of transformation he chooses, the one we're going to hear about today in the Apostles' Creed, the path he chooses is one where suffering is picked up, not put away. As the Apostle Paul reminds us, suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us. In 1961, a group of Nashville students decided they would serve as reinforcements for the now famous Freedom Rides. The two previous busloads of Freedom Riders had been firebombed and beaten, and yet these students were determined to keep the movement alive. The night before their departure on a bus ride they knew would bring them much suffering and possible pain, the students gathered together to seek God's blessing But before they sang God's praises, they took a moment to sign their last will and testaments. Singing hymns after signing one's will. That is the cost and the joy of discipleship. Step one is self-denial. Step two is claiming the cost of discipleship along with its joys, which leads to us the third And final step, following Jesus. Now, in today's passage, when Jesus tells Peter to get behind me, Satan, he is not only rebuking Peter, he is also reminding all of us where a person needs to be when they are following someone else, behind them, letting them lead the way. To be a disciple is to be a student of the master our whole life long. Todd Bolsinger was really reluctant to send the email. He was worried his request would reveal a glaring weakness that would make others doubt his capacity to lead, which would be problematic for someone who serves as associate professor of leadership formation and senior fellow for the Dupree Center of Leadership at Fuller Theological Seminary. The email was addressed to an old mentor of Todd's, Steve Yamaguchi, and in the email, Todd was asking Steve for help. He was asking him to help him continue his growth as a leader. He was looking for a mentor. He wrote, Steve, as you know, I'm a 50-something white guy with three academic degrees who was given leadership responsibility at an early age. Most of my work over the past two decades has been in pretty culturally white contexts, and now, now I find myself back in Los Angeles in a much more diverse setting with many voices challenging mine that I have to admit I, I can't always see and understand and assume. Then Todd took a deep breath and typed the words that made him more nervous than anything else words that made him feel like a fraud and a fake. Steve, I'm wondering if you would become my coach to help me develop my cultural 
competency, a word he had used his colleagues use time and time again. Once he pressed send, Todd felt embarrassed and exposed. His previous leadership book, Canoeing the Mountains, had taken him into settings where many of his assumptions about leadership and leaders were being challenged as normative for the white majority culture, but inadequate for leaders of color, for women, and for settings that were questioning the assumptions of power and privilege. Todd didn't know what he didn't know, and he felt ashamed admitting this out loud to someone he respected and admired so much. He was relieved when, within the hour, Steve had emailed him back. That sounds very interesting, he said. Let's talk about how I can help. Steve then went on to suggest one change in his perception. Yes, Steve said, you are a 50-something white guy with academic degrees and all the rest. So let's not assume I can coach you into cultural competence. Frankly, I don't think you'll ever be culturally competent. But we can talk about developing cultural humility. I like that. Cultural humility over cultural competence. As those who proudly wear the label of disciple, of student, I don't think we're ever meant to seek clarity or competence or mastery or certainty. Now, I think what Jesus demands from us is a commitment, a lifelong commitment to a posture of learning, a posture of learning rooted in humility and self-awareness. We don't lead. We follow. And we follow the one who has so much more to teach us. We live in a narcissistic time where it's so easy to get stuck in a self-referential loop where so much energy is spent just justifying our position, our party's platform, our place at the table. In fact, the language of narcissism is so common today that it often doesn't look like narcissism. It looks like intelligence. And it's as common on the left as it is on the right. As those who are educated and affirmed for our knowledge, for our competency, as those who seek to follow the one who calls us into humility, we have to remember each and every day we still have a lot to learn from the one who has called us. If anyone have become my followers, Jesus says, let them deny themselves, step one. Take up their cross, step two. And follow me, step three. It's counterintuitive, but our primary responsibilities as, as disciples of Jesus is not securing our life or preserving it or accomplishing great things. It certainly doesn't make for the best marketing strategy, but at this critical moment in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus goes out on a limb to remind us that the Christian journey, the journey to joy and to peace and to abundance, involves a painful letting go of all the things we cling so tightly to, our identity, our security, and our control. This three-step drop isn't the end of the game. It's simply a practice that puts you in the place where you need to be. In the course of a football game, the quarterback will have to execute this three-step drop over and over and over again. And sometimes it will work, and sometimes it will not. 
takes practice to get it right, and a whole lot of grace. But it's the only way to put yourself where you need to be, to live out your faith in joy and in trust. Step one, a life focused only on ourselves and our needs and our story is a life with a limited capacity to give and receive love. Step two, a life devoid of struggle and suffering and loss, it's a life only half lived. Step three, a life without humility, without an acknowledgement of our limitations, it's a life devoid of grace. If anyone want to become my followers, Jesus says, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And I would add time and time again. Amen.